Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, October 25th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace, and thanks to power outages across the heartland, you're stuck with just me tonight. Our top headlines, Turkey's Erdogan submits Sweden's NATO bid to parliament. China's foreign minister schedules a visit to Washington. Israel amps up its bombardment of Gaza as two Israeli hostages are freed. The U.S. seeks the forfeiture of a sanctioned Russian businessman's $300 million yacht. Several Republicans call for Ukraine-Israel aid to be separated. Iceland's prime minister joins the largest women's strike in decades. Georgia upholds a six-week abortion ban. An off-duty U.S. pilot is accused of trying to tamper with a plane mid-flight. Three Chinese drug makers are accused of using endangered animals in their products. And the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet is found to be unavoidable. Our top story, Erdogan submits Sweden's bid for NATO membership to Turkish parliament. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Financial Times, Bloomberg, Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, Reuters and Politico. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan signed a protocol confirming Sweden's ascension into NATO on Monday and submitted the bid to the Grand National Assembly of Turkey for ratification, making good on a promise he made to the alliance in July amid speculations over the delay. While welcomed as a major breakthrough for the Swedish ascension to the bloc, there is no guarantee that the National Assembly will move quickly. Before the General Assembly proceeds to the final vote, the Parliament's Foreign Affairs Commission must approve the bid. Additionally, since Parliament reconvened earlier this month, Turkish officials have repeatedly urged Stockholm to take more concrete steps to suppress the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, which has been designated as a terrorist organization by Turkey, the EU, and the U.S. Sweden applied to join NATO together with Finland following the outbreak of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine last year, but only the membership of Finland has been approved so far. This comes as Turkey and Hungary have yet to ratify Sweden's membership, holding its ascension process up. All 31 NATO members must endorse an application to the bloc. Meanwhile, the Financial Times reported that a spokesperson for the Hungarian government did not immediately respond to requests for comment on its own stance on Sweden's bid. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Our first narrative spin comes from the local of Sweden. While claiming the delay in Sweden's ratification to be down to a lack of progress in Ankara's demanded crackdown of the PKK, Erdogan's unexpected demands last month for F-16 fighter jets from the U.S. in return for its NATO approval makes any judgment on the outcome of the parliamentary process difficult to estimate. There's no telling when Turkey and Hungary will finally allow Sweden to join the alliance. And we have a counter-narrative B from Daily Sabah. Turkey has upheld its promise despite Sweden repeatedly allowing the PKK to spread propaganda and hold anti-Turkey rallies as Stockholm has reassured that it will not support such an organization to grow its influence. Given that a bilateral security mechanism as well as a NATO special coordinator on counterterrorism has been agreed to be established if Sweden joins the alliance, there is confidence in a speedy ratification. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict there's a 66% chance that Sweden will join NATO before the year 2024. Next up, China's foreign minister will visit the U.S. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Hill, Reuters, Bloomberg, and the Associated Press. 
Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, the PRC's top diplomat, is scheduled to visit the U.S. on Thursday to start a three-day visit and to meet with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Wang's visit will occur approximately three weeks before the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco, where there is a chance President Joe Biden could meet with Xi Jinping, Biden's Chinese counterpart. Xi's potential visit to the U.S. has not been confirmed, but there are hopes he'll take the next step toward cooling tensions between the two countries who've fallen out since 2018 over a trade imbalance, human rights in Xinjiang province, tensions over the South China Sea and Taiwan, and other issues. This trip is also being made to reciprocate for Blinken's visit to Beijing over the summer. The meeting, which was confirmed Monday by White House officials, will feature discussions about the wars in Israel and Ukraine, South Korea's weapons program, and China's actions in the South China Sea. Previously, Blinken on October 14th spoke with Wang by phone and urged China to persuade its allies in the Middle East to work to prevent the Israel-Palestine conflict from expanding in the region. All right, the pro-China narrative comes from Global Times. It's wonderful that the U.S. has tamped down its combative rhetoric and is pursuing a dialogue with China, which has never wanted anything other than peace between the countries. True cooperation, however, will only be achieved when the U.S. puts its words and actions into alignment by no longer politicizing its trade policy, avoiding military threats against China and abiding by the agreed-upon One China Principle. Voice of America brings us the anti-China narrative. The U.S. has always sought a constructive relationship with China, but Beijing has often made this difficult with its actions in the South China Sea and Taiwan, its unbalanced trade policies, and its unhelpful relations with countries like Russia and Iran. But meeting face-to-face in both countries will be the best way to ease any tensions moving forward. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict a 15% chance there will be a U.S.-China war before the year 2035. You know, it's a missed opportunity here. There was a place just outside of San Francisco. You drive over the Golden Gate Bridge, and there was a place called the Dipsy Cafe, which without exaggeration, had the best biscuits I've ever had. I used to uh, always stop there on my way to uh, visit Muir Woods, the the redwood trees, and the place shut down. I think it was a a casualty of the pandemic. So another complication for these uh, tense international negotiations. Oh, well. Our next story, the bombing of Gaza intensifies as two Israeli hostages are released. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Times of Israel, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Reuters, and the Associated Press. Israel intensified its bombardment of the Gaza Strip on Tuesday. The Israel Defense Forces said that in the last 24 hours, it launched strikes at 400 targets in the territory, up from 320 strikes the previous day. After Palestinian militants from the enclave, mostly from Hamas, but also other groups, entered Israel on October 7th and killed more than 1,400 people, Israel has since launched a persistent bombing campaign of the Gaza Strip. Tel Aviv's response has now killed more than 5,700 people, the territory's health ministry said in a statement on Tuesday. About 40% of those killed are children, the ministry said. The ramping up of Israeli airstrikes comes despite Hamas releasing two additional hostages late on Monday, taking the total figure of those released to four. Israeli citizens Yokoved Livshitz, 85, and Nurit Cooper, 79, were taken out of Gaza at the Rafah crossing into Egypt 
before being transported back to Israel. Some 220 people, mostly Israelis, but also citizens of other countries and dual nationals, are still being held as hostages by Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Hamas said it had freed the two women for humanitarian reasons following mediation with Qatar and Egypt. Analysts, however, suggested the move was intended to demonstrate that Hamas could be trusted as a negotiator. The two women have given a number of interviews recounting their experiences since their release. Meanwhile, the Israeli military reiterated its readiness posture for an anticipated ground invasion of Gaza. IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari said on Tuesday that the military was ready and determined for the next stage in the war and was awaiting political instruction. It comes amid earlier reports in U.S. and Israeli media which said that U.S. officials advised Israeli counterparts to delay plans to invade Gaza in order to better secure their hand in hostage negotiations. Those were the harrowing facts, and now for the harrowing narratives, starting with the pro-Israel narrative from Jewish News Service. Following Hamas's terror attack in Israel, the IDF is continuing to strike the network's targets in Gaza as it maintains its war against the terror organization. The IDF will not rest until Hamas is destroyed and all hostages in Gaza are safely returned. Israel's armed forces are ready and determined to launch a ground invasion of the territory, but await a political decision. And we have a pro-Palestine narrative from the Associated Press. Despite Hamas releasing two additional hostages and aid groups vocally warning that the Gaza territory is on the brink of a humanitarian catastrophe, Israel has continued to pound the Palestinian civilian population. More than 5,000 people are now dead, most of those women and children. And another nerd narrative prediction from Metaculus, they say there's a 54% chance that Israel will launch a large-scale ground assault into Gaza before November 1st, 2023, which is about a week away. The U.S. wants a forfeiture of a sanctioned Russian businessman's $300 million yacht. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, Reuters, Business Insider, CNBC, and NBC. The U.S. has filed a complaint asking for a $300 million yacht docked in San Diego, California, that allegedly belongs to sanctioned Russian billionaire Suleiman Karimov to be forfeited. However, another Russian businessman, the former president of Rosneft Oil, Eduard Kudenatov, who is not under sanction, filed a lawsuit against the U.S. on Monday claiming to be the owner of the yacht and requesting its release. As Washington stepped up sanctions enforcement against people close to Russian President Vladimir Putin in May 2022, Fiji authorities seized the 348-foot, 106-meter Amadea yacht as the U.S. pressed its case against the Russian owner. The Amadea, according to Charter World Luxury Yacht Charters, has features including a helicopter landing pad, mosaic-lined pool, fire pits, and a theater. The U.S. Department of the Treasury first imposed sanctions on Karamov in 2018 over charges of money laundering. Karamov is connected to the Russian government and is reported to be worth $14 billion. In court documents, the DOJ alleged Kudenatov was a straw owner who couldn't even afford to maintain the Amadea and another superyacht he claimed to own. In June 2022, Forbes estimated that Kudenatov was worth at least $2 billion because of his 100% ownership of his independent petroleum company and his Russian and Italian mansions. Those were the lavish facts, and now for the less lavish narratives, starting with the establishment critical spin from Bloomberg. 
At best, the focus on seizing Russian billionaires' assets is a distraction from formulating a more realistic strategy to defeat Putin and restore Ukraine. At worst, it's evidence of clear hypocrisy, given the U.S. wasn't sanctioned for invading Iraq for equally unjustified reasons. Either way, seizing superyachts doesn't help Ukraine. And Fortune magazine brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Seizing Russian assets, including those belonging to sanctioned individuals, is crucial for escalating economic pressure on the Kremlin. If the Western countries can navigate the legal complications, the assets should be transferred to Ukraine to help fund its defense and rebuild the nation. I used to work for a uh, a college sports team, and they uh, remodeled their locker rooms, a lavish remodeling. And uh, they didn't factor in the cost of maintaining the uh, the newly lavish locker room. So uh, that didn't work out very well. I wonder how wonder how much the U.S. government is spending maintaining this yacht uh, while it's in uh, in dock because uh, you can't just leave it there. If it gets all degraded, then it's not worth anything. So anyway, I'm sure it's good use of taxpayer money. I know that locker room was. U.S. Senator J.D. Vance joins the calls for Ukraine and Israel aid to be split. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Vanity Fair, USA Today, NPR Online News, and CBS. U.S. Senator J.D. Vance, Republican of Ohio, began sharing a memo titled Differentiating Ukraine and Israel with other senators on Monday, becoming the latest Republican to suggest amending the Biden administration's $105 billion foreign aid package request. According to Fox News, the memo stated that to attach aid to both Ukraine and Israel together would be a grave error, with both situations being distinct, as well as representing a different claim on U.S. interests. Vance said that President Joe Biden shouldn't use Israeli children to secure more aid to Ukraine. He's one of nine Senate Republicans who co-signed a letter last Friday demanding that the two countries not receive funding as part of the same legislative package. Speaking to 21 News in Ohio on Saturday, Vance claimed that the Biden administration wants to use Israel as a political cover for Ukraine, claiming that the White House's Ukraine policy was unpopular. Of the aid requested, the Biden administration has provisionally dedicated $61.4 billion to Ukraine, $14.3 billion to Israel, $9.15 billion to humanitarian relief, including both Israel and Gaza, and the Ukraine. $13.6 billion to U.S. border security, and $7.4 billion to counter Chinese influence in a package that would see Ukraine funded until September 2024. Meanwhile, speaking to CBS as part of an interview aired on Sunday, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, claimed that the separation of Ukrainian and Israeli aid would be a, quote, mistake, arguing that the international matters were interconnected and required a worldwide approach. Those were the facts. Now for the pro-establishment narrative spin from the Washington Post. Current opposition by a minority of isolationist Republicans to a funding bill that includes both Ukraine and Israel lacks awareness of the nuances of the conflicts. Those Republican outliers are also counting on the failure of the party to unite and elect a House speaker to defund Ukraine. Criticism of the Biden administration's approach is foolish and naive. And the Federalist brings us the establishment critical narrative. Many in Washington are pushing the narrative that current events in Ukraine and Israel are so intertwined that the continued spending of billions of dollars from the American taxpayer shouldn't be questioned in any manner. 
The truth remains that only Israel holds the title of being one of the U.S.'s closest allies, and unreserved financial backing for Ukraine isn't sustainable. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, they predict a 50% chance that the U.S. government's spending to GDP in 2024 will be at least 40%, according to the Metaculus prediction community. Remember that stuff, goober grape? You know, it was, it was peanut butter and uh, grape jelly mixed together in ribbons in the same jar. I never, ever had that. Never actually tasted it, but I mean, I would see it in the store all the time. Be hard to separate those two things, but probably better off. Well, and again, two great tastes better together. Hmm. It's a good debate. The Prime Minister of Iceland joins the Women's Strike for Equality. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Associated Press, The New York Times, Voice of America, Sky News, and The Guardian. Thousands of women across Iceland, including the country's Prime Minister, Katrine Jakob Sadatir, went on a 24-hour strike on Tuesday to protest against gender inequality and gender-based violence in the largest walkout of its kind since 1975. The Nordic island nation's trade unions, which represent about 90% of Icelandic workers, had called on women and people who identify as non-binary to refuse both paid and unpaid work for a day. As a result, schools and theaters were closed, hospitals limited their services, and the national carrier Iceland Air canceled its flights. Jakob Sadatir, who joined the strike, known as the Kvenefri, or Women's Day Off, in solidarity with Icelandic women, reportedly canceled a cabinet meeting and stayed home. Before the start of the strike, which around 100,000 people attended, Jakob Sadatir reiterated her goal to eliminate all gender equality by the year 2030. According to a University of Iceland study, about 40% of women in Iceland ranked the best country for gender equality in the World Economic Forum for 14 years in a row, experienced gender-based violence. Al Jazeera brings us the progressive narrative. Nearly half of Iceland's lawmakers are female. 90% of working-age women have jobs, and a woman leads the country. Yet inequality, toxic masculinity, systemic wage discrimination, and gender-based violence persist in Iceland. This historic strike highlights the importance of women in the country's economy and is a step in the right direction towards eradicating the scourge of gender disparity for good. And National Post brings us the conservative narrative. Despite Iceland leading the world in gender equality, the prime minister is standing in solidarity with protesters and endorsing a distorted narrative. While everyone should be treated and compensated fairly, the mainstream portrayal of the so-called pay gap mischaracterizes it as a gender issue, neglected to consider age, experience, personality, and a plethora of other factors. Maybe I'm doing the show by myself today because uh, Melissa's taking Kavenafri. I'll have to ask her. Not today, obviously. She's got the day off. Tomorrow. Georgia upholds six-week abortion law. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, 11 Alive, Associated Press, and Axios. The Georgia Supreme Court upheld the state's six-week abortion ban after voting 6-1 to one on Tuesday to send the case back to Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney, who ruled the law unequivocally unconstitutional in November. The law, which remained in effect while the state Supreme Court considered the challenge to it, was signed in 2019 and took effect after SCOTUS overturned the national right to abortion established by Roe v. Wade in 2022. 
McBurney then ruled that the law violates a provision in the Georgia state constitution because it was signed while Roe v. Wade was still in effect. The Georgia law prohibits abortions once cardiac activity is detected in an embryo, approximately six weeks after conception, though it allows for exceptions in the cases of rape or incest if documented with authorities. Sister Song, Women of Color Reproductive Collective, and other plaintiffs sued to void the law last spring. The Fulton County Superior Court will now be tasked with determining if abortion is protected under the Georgia state constitution and will consider other challenges in the suit, including claims that it violates Georgia's citizens' privacy rights. Well, to no one's surprise, we have some diametrically opposed political narratives on this hot-button issue. The Democratic narrative comes from The Guardian. This ruling isn't surprising because so many Republican-led states have been removing women's autonomy over their own bodies since the reversal of Roe. Abortion access is withering away in Georgia, and similar bans in neighboring states are making it impossible to travel for crucial health care. Advocates have to keep faith, though, that the courts will eventually do the right thing to end these harmful bans. Breitbart counters with the Republican narrative. This pro-life law aligns with the pro-life protections most states have in their constitutions for unborn children after their heartbeats can be detected. Roe should have never been interpreted as a national right to abortion, and the will of Georgia's voters is finally being exercised to protect the unborn and their mothers, despite Democrats' challenges to these types of laws. And Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative predicting a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the U.S., before the year 2030. You want some commentary from me on this story? No. An off-duty U.S. pilot is accused of trying to cut the engine during flight. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The New York Times, ITV News, NPR Online News, and ABC News. 44-year-old Joseph David Emerson, an off-duty pilot sitting in the cockpit jump seat, during a Horizon Airlines flight from Everett, Washington to San Francisco, California, is facing 83 counts of attempted murder after he allegedly attempted to turn off the commercial airplane's engines mid-flight. A spokeswoman for Alaska Airlines, the owner of Horizon, said Emerson tried to deploy the plane's fire suppression system, which has handles that, when pulled, close valves in the wings, shutting off fuel to the engines. The quick reaction of our crew to reset the handles restored fuel flow, the airline stated. The jump seat is the third seat in the cockpit, which is often used by an off-duty pilot, but can also be used by other airline employees or safety inspectors. The airline affirmed that no weapons were involved. After the plane was safely diverted to Portland, Oregon, the suspect was arrested at the Portland International Airport, where he also faces charges such as reckless endangerment and endangering an aircraft. The FAA said it's supporting law enforcement with its investigation. The Port of Portland Police Department stated that the flight crew was able to detain the subject before it landed, with a passenger telling ABC News that after Emerson was taken off the plane, the flight attendant got back on the speaker and said, plain and simple, he had a mental breakdown. According to FAA records, he had received his transport pilot certificate, allowing him to serve as captain on commercial flights on July 10th. Emerson allegedly said, I'm not okay, before reaching up to grab the red fire handles that would have activated the plane's emergency fire suppression system. According to the criminal complaint, Emerson said he had not slept in 40 hours and he had been depressed for six months. Well, let's bring this story in for a safe landing with these two narrative spins. Narrative A comes from the Seattle Times. 
While news of an attempted intentional plane crash by an airline staff member is alarming, the truth is that since 1950, only 24 instances of passengers or crew members successfully doing this have occurred, including 9-11, and most of them involve small planes killing just the pilot. Due to these tragedies, mandates such as having two pilots on board and narrowing access to the cockpit have been implemented, which is why the U.S. aviation industry is the safest in the world. And Narrative B comes from Business Insider. Despite the current shortage of pilots, and although the industry is still incredibly safe, there's a reason for the strict requirements to become certified to fly commercial planes. Even under the current rules, some pilots end up becoming hazards, which is why calls for lowering requirements should be put to rest. Lowering the mandated training flight hours and raising the retirement age may help boost hiring, but it won't make passengers any safer. The bar for licensing pilots must be set higher. You probably think I'm going to tell that story I alluded to yesterday about my uh, weird experience in the San Francisco airport. Nah. Nah. Maybe some other time. Chinese drug makers are using endangered animal parts as ingredients. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Straits Times, Dim Sum Daily, Guardian, CNN, Daily Caller, and Reuters. Three listed Chinese pharma firms, Beijing Tong Rentang, Tianjin Pharmaceutical, and Jilin Aodong Pharmaceutical Group are using endangered animal parts as ingredients in their products, according to a report published by the Environmental Investigation Agency on Monday. The three drug makers are among 72 that the report claims have used body parts from leopards and pangolins, two species facing threat of extinction, in at least 88 traditional Chinese medicine products. The Environmental Protection Group has also found that some of these companies use parts of tigers and rhinos in their medicines, a practice it alleges contradicts China's own stated position that it does not allow the use of tiger bone and rhino horn in such products. The Environmental Investigation Agency's report has called on global investors of the three listed firms, including UBS and HSBC, to divest from traditional Chinese medicine manufacturers using threatened species at the soonest opportunity. It has also urged the PRC to prohibit using endangered animal parts for all commercial purposes. In May, China amended its wildlife protection law, which bans trade in most wild animals for consumption as food. However, it still permits breeding and allows their use under certain circumstances. Meanwhile, TCM supporters and practitioners have alleged that the discipline is threatened by unabated trade in endangered animals. The wildlife trade in China is estimated to be worth around $74 billion. All right, we have a pro-China narrative on this story from Reuters. Wildlife products hold particular significance in Chinese culture and economy though global forces are using the pretext of animal welfare to attack traditional Chinese medicine. China is currently exploring ways to minimize damage to the ecology, including implementing a permanent ban on wildlife trade and consumption. There is no reason to embroil traditional Chinese medicine with these other complex debates. And the anti-China narrative comes from the Wilson Center. China is the world's largest illegal wildlife products market and has driven the growth of animal farms where wildlife species are bred in captivity. If the PRC is serious about protecting species from extinction and reducing poaching, it must fulfill the recommendations of the Convention on National Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, including applying it to the sector of traditional Chinese medicine. And Metaculus brings us the nerd narrative there's a 50% chance that at least five species of pangolin 
will survive until 2050. I don't have any pangolin stories to share with you either. Maybe I should have told you that uh, San Francisco airport story after all. Oh, well. Our final story, a study claims the West Antarctic ice sheet collapse is unavoidable. Here are the facts. As agreed upon by Time Magazine, Science Alert, Washington Post, The Guardian, NBC News, and Reuters. According to a study published by the British Antarctic Survey on Monday, the West Antarctic ice sheet would still collapse in the coming centuries even if the world successfully reduces greenhouse gas emissions. The study found that ice is set to melt three times more quickly in the 21st century than the previous century, even if global warming is limited to 1.5 degrees centigrade, that's 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial levels. Caitlin Notrin, the study's lead author, has suggested that the findings show humanity is now committed to a rapid increase in the rate of ocean warming and ice shelf melting for the rest of the century. The West Antarctic ice sheet is home to the Thwaites Glacier, nicknamed the Doomsday Glacier, which, if it collapses, could raise sea levels by as much as 10 feet. The study didn't determine how much ice would be lost or how quickly, though it did estimate that sea levels could increase by 5.9 feet through the 2300s, 2400s, and 2500s if all the ice in the high-risk area is melted. While the research suggests the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet is imminent, it adds that the world must continue to slash greenhouse gas emissions since our actions will likely make a difference in the 22nd century and beyond. Wow, okay, here's some narrative spins for you. Narrative A from Nature. This study is a wake-up call. Preventing a catastrophe is still possible, and reducing greenhouse gas emissions could give societies time to prepare for and adapt to rising sea levels. Cutting CO2 would prevent the rest of the Antarctic ice sheet, containing more than 10 times as many meters of sea level rise from melting. Narrative B comes from National Post. This isn't the first time scientists have raised the alarm regarding the West Antarctic ice sheet. The region witnessed similar lows in 2017 and 2022. While climate change is an urgent issue, its catastrophic framing alienates and polarizes large portions of the population. Climate alarmism must be taken with a grain of salt as it can risk doing more harm than good. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that sea levels will rise by at least 591 millimeters in the year 2100. I saw a TikTok the other day where there was a pool in the UAE and a, a worker was putting big ice cubes in the pool, but just, just a few of them. I don't... I mean, it's not literally a drop in the bucket, but pretty close. I don't think it was going to do much do much good. Better off putting that ice in drinks, one of which we could all probably use after this solo show. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download the Verity app in the Apple App Store or Google Play. I'm Scott Wallace. Thanks for listening to Verity. Verity.